one of the things that I feel veterinary professionals have is low self-esteem because they don't take a step back and think what a great job they're doing and what a privilege it is to be a veterinary surgeon. From Hamster Wheel Publishing, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nicholl. Today's podcast guest is one of the UK's finest, Professor Stuart Carmichael. Stuart is one of the few people on earth to have headed up the clinical services team of not just one, but two of the best vet schools here in Britain. Talking about the Royal Veterinary College in London and the awesome, superb, outstanding and amazing Glasgow Vet School in Scotland. No bias whatsoever there, I'm sure you're detecting. Now, during his tenure, both locations successfully underwent really, really fast business growth and pretty dramatic transformational cultural change as well, which Stuart goes into in some depth. And we talk about how that can be applied to organizations of any size. Now, Prof Carmichael also seems to have a somewhat masochistic streak, having overseen three, that's right, three large-scale construction of specialty facilities across the UK, the last of which was Fitzpatrick, Oncology and Soft Tissue Referral Hospital in 2016. Prof Carmichael, or Stuart as I call him since I've been annoying him since he taught me as an undergraduate vet, has a list of qualifications and publications that would take days to read out. So I'm going to spare us all the sense of crushing disappointment that our own careers weren't as cool as this by not doing that. What I will tell you is that the cherry on the top of Stuart's large and well-iced career cake was being elevated recently to elite status as a fellow of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, a level of recognition for huge and sustained contribution to the profession. In the podcast, we discuss many topics, including self-doubt, networking skills, the paradox of skill acquisition as a surgeon, team building, self-esteem in the veterinary profession, and most importantly, the lingering doubt that he once played professional soccer, question mark. This was a really fun conversation to have with one of my favorite people in veterinary medicine. It was such a privilege to have another of my veterinary heroes on the podcast, and Stuart did not disappoint. Now, listeners in America, be warned, this podcast comes with a warning because it features not just one, but two Scottish accents. So you might not understand what we're saying, but it will be guaranteed to sound good regardless. So thank you very much for listening. And without further ado, I give to you the wonderful Professor Stuart Carmichael. So welcome to the podcast. Today I have travelled up to London to uh, meet with, uh, is it still Professor? Do we get to call you, still get to call you mm-hmm. Professor Stuart Carmichael? That's good because I keep doing it. I mm-hmm. think, is that the right thing mm-hmm. to do? And we're sat, it feels like we're in a Borg space cube, spaceship or something here, which if you're not a sort of tech geek like I am, it's like a giant cube surrounded by glass. And we're very, very... Um, Fortunate and grateful to have been given a little office space by my friends at Interworks. So thank you very much to Mel and your crew for that. Very grateful. Um, very excited to be joined by Professor Stuart Carmichael today. Um, he doesn't need an awful lot of intro to lots of you. Um, the intro to this podcast was quite long. and It was the very abridged version of the document he sent me with all of the stuff he's done in his life. Um, it's like a, 
I don't know how you describe that. It's a very, very thick body of fairly impressive work. Uh, I hesitate to call it an embarrassment of work. It's embarrassing for the rest of us, I think, than anything else. Um, so very grateful for you to, to join me on a podcast. Welcome, Stuart. Well, thank you. Pleasure. Um, so what we normally do is just um, for people that don't know you, which would be nobody in the UK probably, but since a large, large part of our audience is in the US and Australia, um, maybe just start by setting the scene, a little bit of background on, let, let's just take it back as far as you, as you want, we're not quite on a psychologist couch or anything here, but just give us a, a flavour of, you know, maybe your your upbringing, what, what took you into the veterinary industry in the first instance? Okay, no, that's a good place to start. Um, so, Scottish born and bred, west of Scotland boy, uh, Clydebank was my home. Uh, Clydebank, very famous for its shipyard, and my father and my grandfather both worked in that shipyard and were involved in building ships like the Queen Mary, the Queen Elizabeth, the QE2, which it was, it was a proud little town, which had the guts ripped out of it when I was young, uh, when they closed the, the yard. So essentially working class, fated for a life in heavy industry, but one of the things my father had decided very early that I would never, ever, ever go into a shipyard. And that was kind of the one thing that w- w- drove us when I was young. What, um, why did he, did he ever explain to you why he thought that and what he did in order to help you adjust your trajectory? Um, I think that, I, I think he, it was a pretty horrible life. And he, 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 we, we had a fairly strict upbringing. I've, I'm one of four, oldest of two sisters and, and a brother. But it was a good time because it was a time where the situation was opportune for us to escape the kind of traditions of background. Glasgow University was kind of the obvious place, the target to go. Um, although, interestingly, uh, when I said that I was going to be a veterinary surgeon, my father nearly disowned me, because uh, that came out of the blue, and that's another good story, because I'm not, I, I'm not one of these people who decided to be a vet as I kind of come out of the womb. Uh, in fact, far from it. Apart from a bit of interest in wildlife, and, and the story, it was, I was sitting at the end of fifth year at school thinking, God, what am I going to do with my life? And there's Time's all these, running out here. Yeah, all these things I don't want to do. And one of my pals said, you know, I'm going to be a vet. I thought, that's kind of cool. Um, and so that's what I did, <laughs> which was probably disappointing to a lot of other people who... But it worked out well for me because, I, you know, I, I see a lot of folk who burn out. Yeah. Um, because what they have, what they dreamed of expected, yeah. when they get to the end, isn't what they what it was. And for me, it was the absolute opposite. What were your expectations then of being a vet? Other than that, sounds fun. Well, yeah, yeah it, it's. It, it, I mean, I was the I was in the James Herriot book club, yeah. and that that was that was kind of it. Gerald Durrell, James Herriot, that was a vet to me. Yep. Completely naive. You went to Glasgow. University, right? Yep. And that was, I mean, at that stage, it, it was it was very much hailed as a, a cattle medicine yep. institution yep. at that point. Uh, was the small animal element of that, the companion animal, developing at that stage? Or where was it in its sort of journey? It, it was very early in the journey. And it makes me, you know, when I think back, it was almost bolted on at the end. I remember the cat course was like two lectures. Uh, and, you, and you can see new things which occupy the same space today, but the, the dog and cat thing was very much an afterthought because we still were very much agricultural 
yeah. really focused. Yeah. Um, it's reflected the community that it was serving at the time, right, with the sort yeah. of rural west yeah. of Scotland farming. But, but luckily, I think that, again, by complete chance, and a lot of my life has been by complete chance, it, we had some really, really good, talented, large animal, small animal, because that's what you did then. You had to do everything. And the small animal was just taking off. Um, and I was lucky enough to get in right at the beginning of that. What were your early influences, not just toward veterinary medicine, but you have, there's certain traits that jump out at me when I look through your career. Um, and there's sort of words that jump out, like a lot of study, a lot of personal development, progress, obviously a, a drive to train and develop others. Networking, you're one of the first people I think, I, or certainly one of the first people I can recall who seemed to understand what networking was. I didn't understand what ne networking was at the time. I'd heard it said before, but you seemed to do it more. I remember you talking about getting a shuttle to London. And as a you know, very young, naive student, I thought, the space shuttle goes from Glasgow <laughs> to London. <laughs> and then then obviously some political you know, movements in your career as, as well. And then a whole bunch of innovations mattered over the top. So, I mean, you can answer the question whichever way you want, but I'm thinking of what earlier influences, not necessarily just in your veterinary career, but in your life, had an impact on you and, and pushed you down the, the road that you've taken. Yeah, I, I, gosh, that, that's, a, that's a, a good one. Um, I, I mean, I guess in, in many ways I was an opportunist and I always was looking for opportunity because that's what excited me. I never had a plan. I just looked for exciting things and started to realizing the world was a much, much bigger place than I thought. And I was lucky enough to be, be involved with that. Uh, at, at Glasgow at the time, things were very parochial. Uh, all universities were. Though it, it was like, well, I was, I was a big sports person at the time, but it was like playing for a team that yep. you never left. Yeah. Uh, and I realized pretty soon that that wasn't kind of a, a good notion and the job for life thing was still going on then. I realized fairly quickly that that wasn't a good notion either. But interestingly, I enjoy meeting people, but I am very socially insecure. I get very nervous about meeting people, and I'm not someone who likes to go in and, and talk to lots of folk. So that's kind of an interesting place to maybe dive a little deeper if it's not too un uncomfortable mm. to do so. And, and simply because there's an awful lot of people within veterinary medicine who are introverted and so do very much keep themselves to themselves. How would you describe yourself? Are you m more introverted or less introverted? And how have you, if that's something you're not mm. comfortable with, You've clearly pushed yourself to do it. How did you push yourself to do that? And what was the benefit to you in doing that? Like somebody who's listening to this who is like, I'm, I'm that person. I'm, mm. I'm, I don't feel like I want mm. to go out there and meet people. Explain to them why they should and how they should mm. do that. I guess, uh, I mean, one of the interesting things is if, if someone had asked me very early in my career what I was, extrovert or introvert, I would have said I was introverted. Although when I do all the tests, I come out as an extrovert. But I, I do, I, I still um, worry a lot when I go into to social occasions. Um, it's not my most comfortable place, but I, but I think you develop coping mechanisms and, right. and enjoy it and, and, and realize there are interesting people right. out there to, to meet and, and, and stop worrying so much about yourself 
um, and worry more about... And, and, and for me, it was getting through the front door. Once I was through the front door, I was fine. So it was the fear of what might happen yeah. once you were there. What was the fear? Like, nope, you'd be the person stood at the party nobody would talk to yeah. or... I think, I mean, even when I was younger, I was always I had a reputation for being the last person in the pub <laughs> because I never wanted to be there first. It in or out of... It, <laughs> no, uh, it, yeah. <laughs> You did say you did say early yeah. in your career. So. Yeah, well, but but it's yeah, you know, it's it just and I always had to arrange a group of people to go with me, so I was never on my own, yeah. which was kind of the start of my structural control in a way. Um, and I think that 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 really kind of led on to the the, the kind of bigger occasion. Then, then you realise that it's like everything else. There's always. I think it's 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 a healthy feeling to be concerned about something, but not to let that concern deny you right. the next stage. Right, right. Oh, as a phrase I heard someone saying, um, emotions will, will just pass. Emotions aren't the problem. Mm. It's the meaning we give to the emotions mm. that then start the the, the roller coaster of mm. bizarre, crazy, self defeating thoughts that occur from there. You mentioned coping mechanisms. Are there any any? So you just forced yourself, like, grab yourself by the shirt collar mm. and toss yourself in the door of the party. Mm. Is there anything else? Like, did you have a, a, like questions in your back pocket? You would go right, okay, find somebody, ask these questions, just get in conversations. Or was there was there any structure to it? it was just a matter of get in no, and once I, we're there. We're yeah, good. I I I never planned anything, and um, you know, to this day. I'm very unstructured in that situation. Yeah. Often you'll find people that you click with, and and these are the, these kind of the people because I think you realise a lot of people are exactly like yourself. Yeah. Uh, and and I always found that being kind of genuine, and you would find interests in other people, which actually then became quite exciting. Yeah, the conversations do flow, don't they? Qu- yeah. Questions always seem to be. I, I don't know because I I certainly can relate to some of what you're saying. Um, and being somebody who's usually quite loud, it's almost like a, an opposite sort <laughs> yeah, of thing yeah. to go like, to, I'm going to cover up by being the, the loud person. Yeah. But actually that was kind of self-defeating because you can just get to be a bit annoying if you're a bit yeah. loud. Yeah. And the best thing that I found was being curious about other well, people. I, I, I absolutely agree because, I, and I think that's, that's, that's a trick, to ask questions about other people rather than waiting to be asked about yourself and be and because that almost heightens insecurity. That's that is, is a germ, one of the germinal points of why I do this podcast now as well mm. is 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 becoming so familiar and so happy with asking questions and seeing what happens. So where did the have you got any thoughts on like networking moments where you just went holy shit, that was, mm. I, I didn't see that coming. And it just opened doors and took you in different directions. Yeah, yeah. Any moments like that? Yeah, I guess, um, I mean, I think that, I guess one of my big pivotal moments in my career, orthopedic surgeon-wise, was when we, I did my first course in Davos, which is a big thing for Glasgow to send someone to Davos. Now, I, I complained and moaned and for so long that they decided you know, to stop me. <laughs> complaining they send me easier to send them on a plane and it just opened my eyes in in so many different ways because firstly i was with people who i up to then had regarded as kind of gods um to realize that your own veterinary heroes yeah yeah they were mortal and then and then to meet people who were in the complete same wavelength as i was with my passion for what i was doing and also to see 
uh, for the first time, a really well-organized, structured teaching and training environment for something which was really quite a difficult thing to to pass on. And, and, and to have all these things at the same time just kind of <laughs> took my breath away. Mind-blown yeah. moment. Was that then the foundation for a lot of the other work that you then did back in the UK regards setting up training systems mm. the modular training courses you introduced things like that yeah i think i think that i mean it, it showed me a way to do things and it started a bit of a love affair i had with eo yep. um for many many years because can you just define eo for anybody that wouldn't know oh, what a, that actually AO, is um, a association the study of internal fixation okay. um body um dedicated to investigating, researching, developing, and training orthopedics, both in human and in the veterinary sense. Very strong organization. Yeah. And, and I, I was lucky to be able to participate in that all over the world, which kind of opened lots of doors for me. But at the same time, I found that that's kind of where a part of my passion lay in my teaching was the structure, almost the Swiss structure of it. I'm a very kind of structured person. I like working in lists. I like working in A, B, C, D, E's. That's the way I organize myself. Yep. And that's the way I started to organize my, my teaching. And the courses were kind of a, a realization that that thing worked for other people. I feel like you just gave us, in a subtle way, a blueprint for getting stuff done. Network, push past your fears, get out there, meet people, find people doing cool things, learn from them, model them, and then focus really hard on delivering things in a structured way. Yeah. Well, I think we're done with this interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so, so you're not getting out the door that easily. So I was curious, and we'll come on to some of the specifics of the work that you've mm. done, because that's, that's fascinating and great stuff to talk about. But I wondered if, if you had any people who were, I call them my veterinary heroes. And I wondered if, if you've got people who've been your sort of inspiration or mentors or coaches, and if so, how big an influence on the on you were they and how important are they in your life? And then the sort of part, that's more of a part C of the question is, do you currently work with anybody? Are you still, do you still have people in your life who you mm. lean on, meet with regularly and, and use for guidance? Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that role models I think are really, really important. Um, I mean, I, I was essentially self-trained and self-taught, which was a, an interesting experience, um, which I, I, I think that slowed me down a little bit, but I think benefited me hugely in the long run, and I don't regret that. So I, I, I didn't have a specific mentor. I had, I, had, I had encouragers who can open doors for me, um, like... Donald Lawson, professor of surgery at Glasgow. I worked a lot with Ian Griffiths. So I actually was trained as a neurologist, believe it or not. And uh, a bit like, uh, this, this is a recurrent theme, a bit like being a vet. I, I was a house surgeon. I did neurology for two years, loved it, very structured. And I thought I was doing quite a lot of things there. And I was doing anesthesia. And the thing I really couldn't do very well was orthopedic surgery. Um, and so I decided to become an orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> That sounds crazy. So there's another leaning into the pain moment. Mm. So there's a little sidebar question just came into my head that yeah. we'll come back to, but I'll mention it now because it's, it feels like that might be one of the big questions that would be great to ask you, you to comment on. And that is, 
just the paradox of medicine that exists mm -hmm. in that you start with no skills and unlike a carpenter who can carve away a block of wood and it doesn't matter if it makes a mess of it, when we make a mess of it, something either has no function, yep. has a lot of pain yep. or dies. And so being in the self-taught, like I know when I self-taught myself guitar, I inflicted an awful lot of pain on my parents, mm. but a little different to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> inflicting real pain on an animal. Yep. And I was at the tail end, or I feel like I was at the tail end of a time where I worked with, with great people and great mentors, so I always had the safety net, mm. but I was still encouraged to take what were calculated risks mm. and and work with bosses that knew that if I made a terrible screw up of it, there was mm. still something that they could come in and swoop in and, mm. and mop it up. And that had, that actually happened to happen several times mm. before the basic skill set got rounded out enough to be competent to do it on my own. So I'm just curious about, cause I, like I, I'm actually not curious at all about that and you, mm. that seems completely normal and natural mm. but i look at where we are now yeah and i look at the pressures that graduates have now and their fear factor and anxiety they have mm. with getting clients to make decisions which are then on them yep. if something goes wrong and the level of quality that now exists in general practice in regards to particularly surgery yeah feels like whether it's risk-taking, whether it's skill development, whether it's people are being encouraged at uni level to refer cases, mm. like that's not there. How, does, how do you see that sort of, that, that whole paradox of we have yep. to get skills, we have to cut stuff or to do things and to do that, we're not going to do it ideally. Somebody further down the ladder always has to do it in order to progress up and replace yep. those at the top of the chain. Yep. It's kind of a big sidebar question. Yeah, um, but it, but it's an important question, and I don't think it's an easy answer. I think that um, one of the important things is to separate principles from techniques or problems, uh, because and I, and I think that that that's the, the way I can I, I had I, I learned there are two key things. You worked on your basic principles, because as a surgeon, these were the things. All surgery is based around good technique. And the, the, the kind of problems and the specifics of that come on top. Uh, we used to have huge arguments about how we taught surgery and why at that, at that time the big argument was we should teach more and more and more space, um, which the argument's still raging just now. But that was like, like a technique. Whereas if you teach, if, if the, the students were exposed to lots of different surgery, they could see the same things being used again and again and again yeah. in different problems. Yeah. And, and, and I think that the, 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 there are a couple of other key things. Preparation is huge. I think one of the things that people don't understand is that the nervousness and the anxiety n never goes away. It's not a natural thing. You've got to prepare. And that's and I, I, I particularly need to do this because I need to get my brain organized. And suddenly it just clicks. And I know I've got the confidence to go and do something. But then I've got plan A. And plan B and plan C. For, as a surgeon, when you go into theatre, and and being a surgical clinician, uh, the downtimes in theatre, that's that's where you relax. Yeah. The, that the uptime is dealing with the clients and 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 and, and doing all that stuff. But the, the reason it's downtime is that you've thought everything through before you get into theatre, and your biggest objective when you go into theatre is getting out of theatre. Right with a successful result. Yep. Following the game plan. Yep. That sounds, and it, I was having a conversation with a pilot for BA recently mm. who I'm working on to try and get to come on the podcast because I think there's a lot of symmetry mm. to an extent between what we do, like the stakes are quite high if it goes wrong, 
but there's also a gulf of differences in that everything is so proceduralized yeah. in the airline industry versus everything seems so ego-driven. And what I mean by that is people do it their own way. Yeah. Because they think that's the best way or the first boss they ever met's way, yep. more yep. accurately. Yeah. And that leads to, you know, complication rates and less yeah. than ideal things. Whereas what you've just described, not just sounds like a pilot's approach, you know, having, okay, we're going to map this and log this flight plan, mm. but if X happens or Y happens, here's the detour airport yeah. here and there. It also sounds a lot like a sports, you know, an, an, an elite sports mm. person who maps out the golf shot or the, the rugby play that's coming up next, mm. and they've thought through those options. And that sounds like that's maybe one of the crucial elements of success as well. How do you how do you cultivate that as a or do you need to cultivate that's just inherently part of you to be so structured? No, I, I, I no, I, I think that comes from getting into bad places. Yep. Uh, and learning from that yep. and, and deciding you're not going to be in that bad place again. Which comes back to the first part yeah. of the question is this how if yep. if that's part of the process, are we giving our current undergraduates and young vets in general practice where everybody starts? Mm. Are we giving them a fair crack of the whip just now? And the next question is, is it right that they should be getting a fair crack of the whip? Because the counter argument says it's mm. actually far, far better trained people with certificates and diplomas and specialists and mm. and fellows. And congratulations mm. on becoming a fellow mm. of the Royal College this year. There's an awful lot of people in that space now. Mm. It seems much more busy space than perhaps when yeah. you first got into it. Is it right that the surgeries that maybe once would have been done in general practice are now being done more. And is it even true? Like, is yeah. that is that yeah. more of a staple of the, the diplomat's workload? I mean, again, a very complicated question, Dave. Um, <laughs> Not that I'm trying to draw you into... Change the world. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. um, basics are always basics. And I think that there, there's a need. And, and I guess I was driven by need when I chose my career direction early on when I, I wasn't having a lot of support the problems were mine and I had to solve them yep. and and the need for me was the animal's need yep. that I had to do the best job I could yep. and the way I did that was I tried to get as much information as I could so that I was and I, and I used to spend hours at night beforehand going through books preparing looking at all different ways to do things and then again I just then decide myself what I was going to do Yep. So I wasn't getting into theatre and making it up. Yep. Uh, and that gave me the, 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 the confidence. And I don't think anything's changed with that. One of the things about hierarchies, and, 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 and this is controversial, you talk about certificates and diplomas, uh, that, that is a, a level of training. And it is like sports, yep. um, where if you, if you know the right way to do things, you've got the principles, you should be better at doing the practice. Right. However, that doesn't deny everyone the ability to do that it's just that they've been through a more structured scheme yeah and i think that everyone can actually as long as they know their limitations yeah they can still better themselves yep. without having to have these extra things and one of the things you learn in life is that you, you meet lots of people some people are famous some people are kind of well uh, rewarded some people are well qualified but there are assholes and non-assholes <laughs> And and uh, no matter how well qualified and how famous, you can still be an asshole. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that's a good thought to remember as well. Yeah, I've, you know, there are some really great clinicians out there yep. who do fantastic jobs and they're so humble. Yeah. 
Uh, some of them have got great qualifications. Some of them have no qualifications. Yeah. Sorry about that. No, <laughs> that's all good. That's all good. I want to move on now to perhaps a separate area of exploration. Mm-hmm. So you you are, uh, I mean, I, I'm not aware of anybody else in, in the field that's not just managed and run one of the big teaching hospitals in in the UK, but not content with one has taken on two and, and done so very successfully. You graduated from Glasgow, but ended up the first hospital you took over and and was the first development, maybe not the first development opportunity, but the, the first mm. big management challenge, as it were, was the, the QMH down at the RVC. Mm. And you took that from, I believe, about 400,000 uh, in revenue and you 10x that over a five-year period, which mm. is pretty phenomenal growth. And then you followed that up after afterwards moving to Glasgow and taking that from 300,000 and 12xing that over nine years. And you've had f- subsequent successes doing that with referral hospitals that you've mm. done privately, uh, Fitzpatrick's and with um, with existing projects and all you work on. Thinking back, certainly to the, the first project, what were the challenges you took over and how did you, you set about growing that revenue without... Right, so when, you try, when you're pushing money, clinical teams tend to fall apart about money. Hmm. So what were your challenges in there? And what were the, the levers you pulled to, that brought the, the greatest successes to you along that road? Okay. One critical thing that happened just before I got into that situation was when I left Glasgow, it was a big step for me. I went to Goddard's yep. for a year and a half, and that changed my life. Yep. Because I was taken right out of my comfort zone. I was doing three, four times as much orthopedic work yep. in a different pattern as I had been at, at Glasgow. Loved it. Was working with a great team at the time. What was the shift in emphasis? The shift was in doing yep. rather than... And, and, and you, you had to... I can, I can always remember Monday mornings at Goddard's and people who were there at the time would remember this as well. Where, and I was just doing orthopedics. Yep. I, I was the first person who was kind of employed to exclusively do orthopedic surgery. Yep. So I had my, my week all organized, so I had my Monday organized, my appointments all done. And I would come in and hear all this noise in the, the ward. And there, been about, there were seven cats in over the weekend with fractures yep. that I had to add to my list. And you, you had to then kind of think on your feet. Yep. And you had to really be able to work through a list yep. being organized um, get start at the beginning, get to the end, and on to the next day, and that was great. And it also then made me much more aware of the value of what we were doing. Right. Um, and when I went to RVC, I was very lucky because why? Why did it make you more aware of the value? Well, at, at, at that time, I'd gone from uh, essentially a non-commercial organisation, okay. University of Glasgow, where we did great work, yep. but no one actually could see what what it was worth and we weren't charging to an organization which was acutely aware of what it was doing and exposed us all to that. Goddard's, for for anyone not familiar, is a a, a very large group of practices within the M25. You'd say a very early... Hub and spoke model, very early. model, yeah. Yeah. Okay, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, and and I guess then that prepared me. RVC was lucky because when everyone had gone into the very first referral hospital and left RVC and I was kind of recruited there as an orthopedic surgeon primarily because at that point I never actually had run anything and then I I found I I had a passion for trying to build something and my motivation there was to see 
The problem in the universities at that time was everyone complained because they couldn't get staff, they couldn't get equipment, they couldn't get anything. And my, my basic model was, well, if we earn the money, which we can, we use the money to buy more staff and buy more equipment. And that's, that's the way it works. And luckily enough, again, just at that time, we were bringing the residency scheme into UK. And we kind of pioneered one of the first American-type residency schemes at RVC. Had some great people there at the time, yep. which was also very fortunate. So that allowed you to start bringing in this the level of skill, train them up, and keep yeah. pace with the growth. Yeah, yeah, and we and we drove people hard. We we created teams, we created targets. I don't know what people thought about at that time at RVC. A lot of great people were went through RVC at that time, went on to to greater things. And I was, I was really happy with a tight team, really, really pleased with the way things were going on. People would probably say they hated my guts at that time. I, I, I was pretty brutal at some times yep. because I was so focused and passionate about what we were doing. Yep. And we ran a good orthopedic service as well. Did you have any major challenges to overcome? It was mainly culture and attitude. Yep. The RVC was a great place to work because unlike many of the other big universities, it had a much cleaner management system right and the principal went you 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 could chap in the principal's door talk to him directly and an idea went from start to finish very very quickly there wasn't the kind of whole delay that you see in big organizations everything was very clean and we were very aggressive at that time and 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 there was kind of a, a, a big a big team feeling which was driving the place which i think benefit i mean i i was lucky just to be in the right place at the right time, on the crest of a wave, taking some of the credit. I thought I had the place in nice shape when I left. Uh, and I think it went from to, from kind of strength to strength after that. So yeah, it, it, it was a good time in life, actually. We've just been joined by a, a sausage dog <laughs> in a Heinz 57, I think. Yeah. It just ran past and gave us a little bark there. So good on them. The growth that you experienced, pretty phenomenal to, to 10x a business how else did you start growing that number was it what, what were the, the mechanisms that allowed you to achieve that level of growth and, and what pain came with it yeah well well I mean, we've got to be fair and say we started off for a fra- from a fairly low level <laughs> right right yeah that's got to be recognized and thereafter it was it, i think it was recognizing f- fair charging but then putting volume yeah and and then volume was all really about organization yeah um, getting the right support in place and making sure that the service levels are high to attract the cases in right. and and try to start live or die by these service levels. So it became you became the referral. Were there many other options in town? Because I, I suppose there would have been Goddard's and Medivet would have been around at the time. The universities still at that time were in pole position for yep. referrals because... Yep. Um, and, and, and we had a, a, a great staff. And I think by... We raised the bar a little bit by caring about service, yep. which in the past was not something that the universities particularly were yep. focused on. How did you get that to be a cultural change? I think, again, a little bit by luck. We, we had good direction from the top. We had alignment. I mean, a lot of young people in yep. who were very ambitious, and, and they were looking very much at the American model as well. Yep. And, and we had brought some people from the States. Kenny Simpson was a good example. Um, uh, Roger Bat, who was leading 
the, the team at time had come straight from the States. So we had imported that culture and I was just lucky to be in a, in a place where we could use that yep. with our own raw material. Uh, and so add anything you feel like mm. salient to that point if I'm moving on too quickly. Um, but then you moved to Glasgow. Mm. What did you inherit at Glasgow? And was it a similar set of problems that you had to then address with the commonalities? Could you take what you'd learned at London mm. and say, right, this actually fits really nicely here? Mm. So I've noticed that when I buy practices, the ones I've learned to do in London, it worked in Sydney and it's working mm. you know, wherever you go. It's like almost cookie cutter, the systems and processes. What was your experience? Mm. I think, yeah, I think that's, that's exactly right. It was very much the same problem and the same situation where uh, the, the, the small animal unit was pretty low. They lost key people. There was a willingness by the management to make things happen. And again, I was lucky to be given a chance to do that. The problems, anyone who's worked at Glasgow and worked at London will understand what I'm going to say next. In, in London, when you were a boss, you were a boss. Yep. And it was easy to get things. You said, ask for things to be done, and they were done. Yep. At Glasgow, it was a little bit harder. I remember my first week back, I was proud director of the Small Animal Hospital, which I was, I was kind of puffing my chest out. And I remember there was a cleaner in the corridor shouted at me and said, hey, you, I've just cleaned that floor. <laughs> and that, that kind of summed up the, the attitude because there was a lot more resistance to change yeah. at Glasgow. Yeah, and they probably shouted it. Nothing like as uh, you've edited that for the benefit of the podcast. I'm absolutely certain. Can you expand on any of the systems that you find to be really useful across the board? And actually, before you go on to that, the, the question I, I didn't ask there that I, I meant to was: it's noticeable that you know when you've done something once, you expect it to get faster and better when you do it again. When you're doing like your your first cruciate operation, mm. it might take you a couple of hours, and then you mm. expect improvement. Is the resistance that you found at, at Glasgow the reason why you actually got a bigger result in terms of growth, but over a far longer period of time, which probably nets out as being a little bit slower year in year growth? Was that a political thing, or is that just lacking the the, the client base comparatively, or what, what's that? What's that reasoning behind that? I think uh, quite a lot of things. I mean, I think London, Glasgow, two different business situations. Competing in a completely different population market. Yep. So it was harder to build that up in Glasgow. And the culture was also very different. There was more resistance to actually charging. Yeah. Because there was almost the NHS feeling at Glasgow, yeah. which we had to overcome. And it was, a, it was a more studied argument. And I think that that's an important point, because I think when you do something again and again, you've got more answers. So when the questions come up, you've got the answers. Yeah. And, and, and you can carry people with you and explain. And, and I think that's, you can never force these things in people. People have got to go with it. And so it, it's, it's persuasion. And I think the difference between um, London, London was kind of hard persuasion. Glasgow was softer persuasion yeah. and picking up momentum as it went along. Yeah. Yeah. And with a lot of support. I mean, Max Murray at Glasgow was fantastic. You know, he, he, he was a person who believed anything was possible. Yeah. And, and and in many ways, that's you've got to have someone like that in your corner who's kind of just backing you all the way. Do you have a formula that for change management? You know, you've done this so much. You, you, I mean, now you work effectively as a change yeah. management specialist. 
What's the formula? Like for people listening, I know that change is one of the biggest challenges we face. Like everybody mm. is scared of change, especially mm. in a uber conservative mm. industry like veterinary medicine. So you're kind of an expert in that, that area. So what things should people be doing in order to get some positive change happening in their practices? I mean, I'm a bit of a freak because I love change. But I think that the thing about change is that most folk hate it. Yep. Most folk hate it and it really d- disturbs people. So I think once you start changing, I think you've got to, it takes everyone out of their comfort zone, but that's an opportunity. And you've got to be very, very organized and very strategic and work quickly to put as many changes as you can into that time where people are kind of out of their comfort zone. And you need to take a, take a lot of time to communicate and talk to people yeah. to, to, to guide them through the process. And you've, you've almost got to build trust because people have got to trust you for a, for a period of time. But push hard when it's changing because when it stops, it's really impossible to start again. Are, are there any ways that you find to be more effective at building trust with people than others? I think honesty and transparency. Yeah. Um, I think transparency is probably the, a key thing in a business setup so that so it's everyone's game. Uh, everyone understands what they're trying to achieve yep. they, and, and they join in and support the process. And honesty is, when, if something's bad, you've got to tell them it's bad because you can't get trust without honesty. That sort of almost leads into questions about feedback and things like that. And I know that's another place that people really struggle with. Mm. Um, you know, like we are a, a notoriously conflict-averse mm. group as well. And I, I wonder if that's, we're painting ourselves as different to the rest of the planet because I think most people are, for the most part, conflict-averse. They'd rather not have it in their lives. And of course, feedback puts you in a position where you're having to give somebody some form of information that they may perceive mm. in a way that is a threat to themselves mm. and therefore react in, in a manner accordingly. Have you found any ways more useful than others in giving people feedback or... Uh, you know, are there any recommendations for people on how they should give feedback? Mm. I think, or, or receive it. I think personalization is always a, a problem, and I think that that's the, that that is the enemy of. Can you define what you mean by? I think I know what you mean by that. Yeah, I think I think that you know, that there's work, and there's people. Yeah, and and when you're trying to, you oftentimes you're just trying to change work. Yeah. And it's professional. Yes. Um, and I used to always say to people, uh, uh, you know, I will criticize you endlessly in the work because I'm very self-critical myself. Yeah. But let's go and have a drink afterwards or a meal afterwards. Out of work is out of work. It's not personal. Yeah. And I, and I think that that's, you've got to maintain that. If people think it's personal, they're being victimized, yeah. that's wrong. So you've got to, and you've got to remember to praise. Right, okay. That's, everything's a balance. Yep. It's, it's easy. And I, and I think as vets, we are very self-critical. We're, we're, we're very easy to see when things are, are, are wrong and are, we're very slow to see when things are right. Yep. And I think when you're trying to manage change and manage people, you have to set that balance for everyone else yep. and, and try and install that culture in everyone that's working with you. Well, that sounds like sage advice. If it sometimes feels like when we do something well, that's almost what people perceive it's to be expected, normal. It's yeah. expectation, right. 
and and that that comes back to this whole conversation about I was being interviewed yesterday um, on a live video broadcast, and people were talking about the level of dissatisfaction that's in the profession at the minute. And I I have to say I've maybe I've been fortunate, but I've always found this to be an amazing profession. I mean, mm. I love it still, and it, it baffles me a bit why people are so dissatisfied and complain about it and and do nothing about it. Mm. And I think it comes back to that expectation mm. that pe- people have too much expectation and not enough gratitude mm. or too much expectation and not enough compassion or too much expectation and not enough accountability for mm. taking control of their own situation. But that expectation of good being normal mm. is, I think you're dead right. I think there's an unhealthy level of that. The numbers I've read are like giving like seven positive pieces of fra- of praise mm. Where, where deserved, but finding mm-hmm. the reasons to do that, and you will get the the the, the bit of feedback that is perceived negatively mm. wouldn't be such a destructive force. Versus, it's always bam, 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 and and, and it's got to be genuine. Right. You can't blow smoke up people's ass. Yeah, because that that is perceived as well. But I think it's interesting. There's, there's almost kind of black and white statements. You know, people say the veterinary profession are too needy. Yep. But in fact, that's because they care. Right. And, and I think if you care a lot, I think that is something that defines us all. We do care hugely about what we do. It makes us vulnerable. And we take things home. Thing, you know, we're dealing with horrible situations day in, day out, which are supposed to be routine. They're not. They're affecting people's lives. They're affecting our lives. And in and, and some ways, we've got to have a mechanism to, to control it. Because it's like, and that's, that's the second thing, is esteem. I think that one of the things that I feel veterinary professionals have is low self-esteem because they don't take a step back and think what a great job they're doing and what a privilege it is to be a veterinary surgeon because that gives you your direction and your drive to keep on going. Where does the lack of esteem come from, do you think? I think it goes back to what you said before. Again, we're going round the circle in a way because it is that good's expected, mm. bad's terrible. Yep. Um, and and no, one, no, no one actually tells you. I think we're all very competitive. Yep. The young veterinary professionals are very bright. They've been told, they've been rewarded all the time by their exam results. Yep. But, and suddenly they get into an environment where that feedback isn't as strong and it's not coming back the way yeah. they, they expect it. Right, so they just walk into real life where they don't get, and they've worked hard. I mean, the the, the grads coming out now are like they're scarily smart. Like that, like I mean, they're always scarily smart compared yeah. to me in any case. But they are smart and they're hardworking. But you're right, they hit, mm. they come up against real life and the lack of feedback, and suddenly they're not on that pedestal. And real life, I think, has changed as well because the respect for the veterinary professional has changed in society as well. I think we're lucky. We're not as bad as the doctors or other people mm. who have actually suffered more. Yeah. This, this, this idea that there's no real reverence or there's no respect for people who have done well but are not rich. Um, though, though people, I, I read an article that said like, and, and this is actually an article about assistants to bosses. Mm. So I can imagine the gap from people external to profession to vets is even bigger. But most assistants think that most bosses take home about, it was a, it was a US mm. number, or maybe Australian, it was about $200,000 a year. Mm. Uh, whereas the, the real number was much closer to 50. Mm. Um, and when you look at the pay curve, it goes up and up and up. 
until about I think about five, six, seven, eight years post graduation, mm. and then the bad news is it starts yeah. coming down. Probably because you're starting to you own a business and you're doing tax in a different yeah. way and, yeah. and and whatnot. So, but the the gap and the expectation was huge. Is the gap? Are we creating that problem for ourselves then? By by, uh, I'm I'm just I'm 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 tripping over the logic that says, like how do how do pet owners not know how much we make? I think you're, on, you're actually touching a good point there because what, what you're, you're talking about is the Achilles heel of the veterinary profession yeah. because we're not, I think most of us are not money motivated. Yeah. We're not in it for the money. Yeah. The, cli- the clients think we do it for a hobby because the fact we're not in it for the money reinforces that. They think that we do it because we love it. We don't need to be paid. Right. And it's not an expectation they have of the person who sells them insurance or the person who, even their doctors now, um, they, they, they see the affluence and it yeah. doesn't bother them. I think the affluence and, and the worry about it is more us rather than our clients. We worry our clients will think, well, we were making so much money. Yeah. But what's the difference between success and overt, vulgar display of wealth? Right, absolutely. We idolize pop stars and rappers, yeah. you know, for having this vulgar display of money. Yeah. Yet we, as a, we are like the absolute opposite end yeah. of that spectrum. And we idolize people in the city. Yep. Who make lots of dice doing nothing. Right. right. Yeah. He says, yeah. respectfully. Flood <laughs> 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 section podcast could possibly comment on the, uh, the accuracy of that statement. Um, what... And we probably are getting too big a question there for, for one little podcast to fix. But what's the single thing that we can do to enhance that esteem? As a group of leaders, and, and the people that listen to this mm. podcast are mostly leaders, the practice mm. owners. If self-esteem is such a damaging thing for the profession, and I think it's entirely fair to say that's one of the reasons, one mm. big issues we face. How do we, what's the one thing that you could change with a lever you could flick that would improve the self-esteem of our people? I think it's to take a step back and and look at the impact on other on our clients and what we do, how it changes their life, and and understand how huge that is. Is there a place for? I mean, it's almost like saying affirmations to yourself, isn't it? It's mm. it's, it's the thought process of reflection, and something I've I've used a lot over the last few years is journaling. Mm. just to map out it's like just keeping a diary mm. and and i suppose remembering those moments where you know that's that's why i wound up being so interested in dentistry was the immediacy of the feedback that said this is having a gigantic impact on mm. an animal that was clearly in pain and distress mm. that wasn't showing it is now a five-year-old puppy yeah you know uh, or, or it's been five years since they've seen puppy-like yep. behavior and it was that feedback plus the enormity of caseload that was mm. out there mm. that, that drew me into dentistry as just being an impactful place to spend time. So is it, is it journaling? Is it reflective practices that, that we incorporate into proceduralize feeling good about what we do? I think, I, I think that's a big part of it, actually, Dave. And, and I think it's also getting, getting the balance between rote medicine, which is hugely important, vaccinations, things that that we do to keep well animals well and also and 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 kind of that's where we're going in the future because let's treat the well animal not because yep. and the veterinary profession for so long was a fire brigading profession yeah a fire brigading profession 
may get adrenaline going, yeah. but it, 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 it's not got a future as mm. such because that's the thing that can destroy you. So I think it's, it, it, I think it's, it's, it is about identifying the great gains to animal health that we've made yep. as a profession, we continue to make yep. without looking for these fire brigading situations yep. to reaffirm that. Let me, at the risk of tossing your grenades here, okay. but let me ask you, because what's come across in our conversation is how important procedure is to you, yep. whether it's been in your surgery, whether it's been turning around hospitals, uh, and you said like structure is very important yep. to you. Just when you mentioned rote medicine there, I know one of the big resistance points that vets have is being told how to do medicine. Don't like procedures. Yeah. In spite of the fact that the overwhelming body of evidence from medical literature and yeah. just common sense says the best option is the one you practice the most. Yeah. And you get best at and that you can standardize and control the variables, et cetera, et cetera. Where do you stand on that side of the debate? Like, do we need more procedure protocols? Is that what animal health needs? Or is freedom of choice, is freedom of choice just another word for ego? And I'm actually a grown-up kid and I don't want to do what you say. Or is it truly this is an innovation killer to just have protocols everywhere and, it, and people get bored? Like, where do you stand on that? I, I, again, a huge question. I, I think, and and in fact, one of the things I'm doing just now, actually, is right in the middle of that in a way. Um, so I've kind of nailed my colours to the to the mast in one sense. I think, I I would think we've got to pick our battles. I think that I I, th I think there's no doubt that doing a thing again and again in a way that works makes perfect perfect sense, and then you enjoy the results. The the, the 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 kind of demand then or the the challenge then is to see something that it doesn't fit completely into that pattern and to recognize it and to then be skillful enough to push it back into to, to main line I think our efficiency as a healthcare profession and and I think you know two of the big challenges are the the amount of data that we have to compute ourselves with the burgeoning increase in veterinary knowledge and the number of options that we have yeah. at the other end of the scale to bring these two things together. So I've become a big fan of using the, 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 the things that work with big data best, that is computers, to feed in information to give us an advantage and so our time is much better at looking at that information, deciding what's best for what we see in front of us, and that is the animal and the owner, and the choices that we know that we're able to to, to perform. Oh boy, big data, and where do we go? That's that's another huge mm. discussion. So maybe we'll save that one for another time. But but certainly, before we move on to the the short form questions, everybody loves the short form oh, questions. Okay. Oh by dear, the way. right? Okay. But before we go there, <laughs> I know that. I wanted just to talk about what you're working on just now, because I, I think you've got a really cool project you're working on with a lot of potential. Um, so why don't you tell us a bit more about this sort of osteoarthritis management tool that you've okay. been working on? Well, well, well again, the, uh, I mean, basically, it's a decision support tool for chronic disease management. And the chronic disease in question is osteoarthritis which is an orthopedic surgeon I've always had a passion about because it was a bit of an enigma. To me, it was a really, really complicated disease which was treated 
in a very uncomplicated way and, in fact, ignored, um, like many chronic diseases, because it's not easy to cure. The sad fact is that uh, chronic osteoarthritis represents the most common cause and source of chronic pain in animals. And as our animals get older, the same as the human population, chronic diseases become much more important. So having spent a lot of time um, looking at cases, dealing with people, trying to understand the problem, it seemed to me that process, falling back in process was one of the answers to this. Um, Taking a global view of the the problem and giving a global solution. And then realizing that that really wasn't uh, commercially sellable option or, or possible option because it took too much time. Yep. Uh, so what, what I'm involved in now is trying to create the, the kind of the virtual consultation, which is something that can capture data in a very systematic way from an owner, which gives insights into a lot of different aspects of the animal's problem, which then can be processed, can be understood and be used to give a sustainable solution, which is not a solution just for next week. It's a solution for next month, for next year, for five years. And the owner then buys into this and owns it. Because they, for chronic disease, they are the people who have to make a difference. We can just support them. They're the primary care managers. They've they've got to do it. And and, and it's something that neither the veterinary profession or the medical profession have got their head around yet. So what does that system look like in the exam room, if I'm a general practitioner, what does it look like for me as, as the practice? Well, well, here, and here's a big challenge because, again, what it does is it is altering the traditional way in which we've practiced medicine for the last hundred years. So it, it replaces the, the conversation between the person with the problem, the owner of the pet, and the veterinary professional. Yep. with a, a more systematic input system. So when you come in, you're given a, a little chat and then you're presented with a touch screen with a whole list of questions, yep. which you answer quickly using your gut feeling. And usually the answer is, is always the same. It's best to worse yep. on a scale. And the, and the questions have been, have been made to be non-confusing, but to give that that thing and then... Having completed that, your survey, that's committed to the computer. Yep. And then you see the veterinary professional who then examines the animal. Big thing about clinical examination, because that's one of the things that is essential, Mm. but goes through the same process and commits that clinical examination to the the database in the same way, best to worst, best to worst. Answer a few extra questions about the disease, and then the, it, it's, that data goes into an algorithm which then presents the practitioner with a, a potential plan, yep. a guide, yep. which then they can modify to suit the, the animal. Okay. And can they then, you know, dynamic data points, can they be put in from home based on observation of the pet yep. owner? Absolutely. And, and the key thing is, I mean, it's replacing the... the, the it's trying to replace the traditional data entry, yep. data output system. Yep. But the, the system itself is essentially a hub. Yep. So it it what it does, the algorithm is there to take as many data en- entry points as we want 
from as many places as we want to get a more complete picture, yeah. but efficiently process that and and use the animal to, to benchmark against itself. So it's right. going to personalize medicine. It's going to customize medicine. It's making a plan for that individual and that animal. And it's very much removing lot of the subjective bias of perhaps seeing one clinician then another clinician then another it's giving you much it's more standard continuity absolutely which is the, which is the enemy of chronic disease absolutely it, yeah. if you don't have continuity you just can't have a sustained plan and this is live this is a this isn't just a theoretical project it's it? live it's, and it's it's in practice just now and it's picking up where, information where do people go to to find out more about that if they're interested in trialing they, this thing out the, there's a website, aimoa. Yep. Is there a dash in there or is it? It's aim.oa. Aim.oa. Yeah. Assists.com. Aim.oa. Assists.com. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what we'll do is we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes for yeah. that. Yeah. For anybody that and wants that, that gives that. It's kind of an overview. And it's something I'm really excited about because I, I do think within 10 years, we will all be doing something similar to this to get our, our own personalised healthcare. Ooh, whether whether we're even vets or we're just computer technicians in 10 years, that's a whole other conversation. So Stuart, being respectful of time, okay. um, let's hit some of the quick fire questions that people tend to quite like. So for easy one to start with, what's, or maybe it's not easy if, if you're, if it depends how humble you're feeling. What's the thing that you do better than anyone else? Your, your superpower, as it were. Yeah, it's, I, I think that I change with passion. <laughs> okay, and what's what's your kryptonite? Procrastination. <laughs> <laughs> procrastination, procrastination. Is let's okay, so let's think about the next one. I'm just gonna go straight for that. I like this one. What do you think vets in general? What do we do really well? I think that we we care. And we, by, by caring about animals, we do a good job at keeping them healthy. Uh, and we take the, that burden on ourselves yep. and cope with it. Uh, and I think that's a, a really important burden that helps society yep. as a whole. How do, we, how do we care for ourselves better? That's the thing we haven't got right. Have you, do you have... Um, any routines, habits? Because there must have been a, a whole bunch of stress in your professional career. Like none of us are immune from that thing, those things. Mm. Um, and so what things, habits, routines do you have for managing stress or managing, maybe just not stress. Stress isn't always a bad thing, right? Some stress mm. is a very good thing. But how do you keep your, your needle in the green and not running in the red? It's interesting that a lot of, a lot of the people of my ilk who... Um, have survived this, probably don't have the right solutions for it. Um, and if you talk to my wife, she'll tell you that I certainly don't have the solutions for it. But I think it's having people who can tell you, who can spot, have, having trusted friends who you can go to yep. um, and just escape. Sometimes that's all you need to do. Yep. Um, uh, you, say, you say, don't take your work home with you. I do. Um, I know I work with people who can switch off and I think it's a great skill to just when you walk out the door that's it done switch the phone off stop worrying because worrying worrying never changes anything nothing. yeah yeah, yeah. Right. and I think I, I'm a big worrier um and I think if, if I was to that's one of the things I would like to get rid of 
I think if, if you can kind of train yourself not to worry because it doesn't make a difference, yeah, that's really good. One of the things that I have found great for sort of anxiety and 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 worry um, is is meditation for sure. Have you have you got any practices in that regard, or was that just something that wasn't on the radar? It's, it's very much, seems a much more recent thing. Like I would, yeah. Ten years ago, I wouldn't wouldn't have been on my radar, and I'd have thought it quite ridiculous if you'd have told me I'd be meditating every day now. No, I I I, I don't do that, but I I do. F- I guess I found I I can go and just black my mind out. Yeah. You know, sometimes you you find your your mind is just kind of blowing fuses all the time. Yeah. And it's good just to take time out and just blank everything. And I guess when I was younger, I used to play a lot of sport. Yeah. And that was a great therapy for. You to just to take you into a completely different environment where you could just get rid of that, that adrenaline. I think there's a lot in that actually. The last podcast I just recorded that um, gone out with uh, Dr. John Dooley um, and Dr. Nadine Hamilton, and that was one of the things. Now John did end up spiraling into a very depressive and suicidal state. And it was about four years after he gave up playing rugby. And he says mm. that was one of the contributory factors, just not having that outlet for yeah. energy and angst. And and also the team support. I mean, I, I was always been a big team player. Yeah. And and when I stopped playing, I used to play a lot of football. Yeah. Um, well, well beyond when I should have stopped playing football. But I missed... I do recall the hamstring injury in <laughs> the playing field, sure. Yeah, and I, and I, and I, but I do miss... After about three minutes. <laughs> yeah, well, that was, uh, it was a recurrent one, as you said. Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, and that, that, that's something that, that you miss because that, that is an escape. And, and I think, thinking about my career, when I was under a lot of stress when I was younger, when I was coping with some of the bits and pieces that I'd, I was coming across from the first time, um, it was sport and that social aspect that really kept me f- grounded. It was a very, very strong part of life at Glasgow that I was always very grateful for was the, the you know, the, the sporting community side of it. And it certainly mm-hmm. has kept me on the straight and narrow for a long period of time. All right, two of my favourite questions. <laughs> um, what was the best piece of advice you've ever given or received? <laughs> The, the best piece of advice I was ever given was um, a very early in the career when Tom and t- someone told me, if you want to really achieve, you've got to select an area, focus on it completely, and make it yours. And that's the, and, and that I would commend that to anyone. I completely ignored it for my whole career, but I still think it was good advice. <laughs> it's, it's, it's brilliant advice. So... <laughs> On that note, what was the worst piece of advice you've ever? Unless that was, unless you just answered two questions yeah, you're, you're in one. Be <laughs> the, the, the worst, the worst piece of advice was the person who told me to buy for my first car a Fiat One Two Eight Sport, <laughs> which which actually ruined my life for three years because it, at that time a Fiat One Two Eight Sport in the Scottish climate were not compatible, and it would never start. <laughs> Italian engineering in a, a Scottish climate. Yeah, it just didn't work. <laughs> so I was going to ask you then, maybe are there any books that you've read that are standout books? I'm thinking on probably more on the leadership self-development side along the ways you think yeah. that are really impactful you'd recommend to people. 
I mean, I think the one that stands out to me, and I've read a lot of these books, and I enjoy these books, but a lot of them are kind of self-indulgent. But I love Jim Collins' books, and Good to Great is a standout for me, because one of my disappointments when I started to get get immersed in business was to find how unstructured business was. Yeah. Um, Coming from a very kind of knowledge, evidence-based background, and Jim Collins seems to capture that very well, and, and, and... and well it's a good read as well yeah great examples absolutely agree agree if you could give one piece of advice to yourself back when you graduated vet school what would it be have more confidence i think that i was i i I did suffer from a from a lack of confidence i overrespected people um was in awe of certain people uh, which again prevented me from approaching them and perhaps accelerating relationships and, yep. and knowledge. So that would be it, really. What's the most controversial thing people don't know about you that matters? <laughs> don't say anything else. Don't say anything that drops you. You can answer no. that one or not answer no. that one. I, did well, you? Here's actually. <laughs> did you ever actually play for Rangers Football Club? No, I didn't. That's I, the rumor. No, I didn't. I, oh, we can still be friends. I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you off the hook for that one. No, I, I think that I, I guess one of the things that caused me more problems than anything else is that I don't know my left from my right, and that might sound literally. Crazy. Literally, yeah. If you're if you and I are in a car and I'm driving, you say turn right. There's a fifty-fifty chance of which way we would go, and and, and as, as an orthopedic surgeon. That presents problems. Indeed. And my nursing team always had to, knew that when I said left or right, they had to check which side it was because it didn't one? mean anything. And it also affects my my dexterity. I, I, there's something, I can't tie knots by hand as a surgeon. Yeah. I always instrument tie yeah. because my left-right thing just doesn't work. That's sort of almost fascinating itself because you'd think that would that would be a really big challenge. Yet here you are. I've done everything you've done and totally overcome that. Did you ever like cut off the wrong leg by accident? I'm not going to answer that. (laughs) I never, I didn't cut off the wrong leg, but. (laughs) Enough said. Mm. Um, So I just wondered where we've got the website for you, Stuart. Is there anywhere people can go um, if they want to learn more about your work or connect with you or send you a hello and say you're great on the podcast or whatever well i, I mean i think um just information on google yep. um joint adventures is one of the companies that i've got just now it's like my consultancy company stuart c at joint dash adventures dot co dot uk comes straight to me uh, and i'd be happy to pick up on anything anyone wants to to discuss and I can certainly second that Stuart's been a very good mentor to me and friends. And so, Stuart, thank you very much for your time coming on the podcast. No. Very, very grateful for it. Some really interesting and, and profound thoughts and comments in there that I always learn something listening to you, and I'm sure everybody out there has. So thank you very much for your time. No, pleasure. Thanks very much for asking me. Thank you. 
So guys, thanks again for listening. Before you duck off, just one little point of housekeeping. During the episode, we gave out a web address for Stuart's arthritis management tool, and it was nonsense, as you might have picked up during it. So here's the right web address. It's www.aim-oa.com. We will also link to it in the show notes. I want to thank you all for listening. And if you liked what you listened to, don't forget to give me a five or a four or a three or a two or whatever star rating you think this podcast was worth on iTunes. And as always, you can follow what I'm doing on facebook.com forward slash Dr. Dave Nickel. Until the next show airs, have a great month and take care of yourselves.